The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. stuff we can't include in the jack opening. As, as jack astutely pointed out several episodes ago we can do a political podcast if you want to but that's not what we're doing that's right right what we're I'm doing not, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to that idea what we're doing here is saying welcome folks to episode number 53 of uncontrolled <laughs> airspace the general aviation podcast we're recording this on uh, wednesday evening october 31st it's halloween 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 yeah we- so uh Ooh. Dave, Dave, you can you can take off your mask. You're we're among friends. Hey, well, this is a lot more fun Halloween than last year at this time. <laughs> I hear that. I last hear year that. on Halloween was it was the night that I became a ten day resident of Wesley Medical Center. Ooh, that's right. Come a long way, baby, huh? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Upright, take a nourishment, and that's because there's no Jack H like our Jack H. Oh. Oh, okay. We'll oh, okay. Uh, it's been a while. We'll, we'll let him have that one. We're going to have to start all over again. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to let him have that one. It's okay. <laughs> so uh, let's see now. I have my roommate downstairs manning the front door as kids come in. and uh, we're giving Do you like order. send him an invoice every time he does that now? No, 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 no. It's like, it, it, no, he should send me an invoice, man. It's good. It's, uh, you know, because it you know, kind of ups my reputation. I don't know. Uh, Halloween. So my roommates are giving out candy downstairs. And uh, what's it like in your neighborhood, Jeb? You're a brand new neighborhood. Did, did kids brand come new- to your house? No, I've I've got the front lights off, and uh, I'm at the the end of a uh, one way street. What are you like a Halloween Scrooge or something? I'm not a Halloween Scrooge, but I don't have you know right now the time to get up and and dispense candy to That's... to to a bunch of kids. But the punchline That's all exactly this is... what Scrooge said. Well. I'm doing my podcast this evening, so uh, I, I was going to say he's dispensing can to kids. He's not dispensing pearls of aviation to right. the world. Uh, and I, right. I'm not sure who's the worst for this. And but anyway, they, yeah. But but the the real punchline though is I'm I'm way down here at the end of a one way street. Um, the street itself is kind of hidden. Um, it's it's not readily accessible. It's not really readily recognized from the main drag. And there are there's only one family with kids on the street that I've seen, and they're next door, and they know not to bother me. So, well, um, and there's that wait, sign wait. on the front porch that quotes W. C. Fields. Kids, I love kids, particularly barbecue. <laughs> really, you've already been scaring the neighborhood kids, Jeb. Come on, you've only been no, here no, six I haven't weeks. Been, I haven't- haven't been scaring the kids, and in fact, uh, um, I wave at them every morning when when they drive off, and uh, I'm I'm usually walking back to my house after my morning constitutional. Wave hello, and you mean, right? Wave hello, okay. yeah. Wa- what did you think I was going <laughs> to wave at them? <laughs> uh, yes, it is Halloweeny. And so, We're Dave, how's your Halloween? What, what goes on in your neighborhood? Do you like your little nips of, it's, of pinch? It's, the lights on on the front porch. Uh, it, but no Bride and Bride and better <laughs> half Annie is uh, is inside with the dog, and will you know answer and just 
it's uh, little candy pops to anybody that happens to ring the doorbell. But we're not really very child heavy in this neighborhood for some reason. Uh-huh. Uh, so we get years when we might get five or six and we get years when we get none. Which is really tragic because that means that all those Reese's cups and Reese's pieces and uh, you know got to get consumed, and there's oh. nothing like Reese's peanut butter cups and beer. So there you go. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. I've been down yeah, there especially sneaking. if you have you know uh, an, account, an advertising account with Pepto Bismol or something. Uh-huh. But uh, um, <laughs> no. so what do you think? This is a night where I've almost forgotten to introduce all three of us. How's that? <laughs> I was looking at the clock, seeing how much longer we were going to go. Quickly saying hello to to my other friends here in the hangar. Of course, Dave Higdon is with us. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. And he's in Wichita, Kansas, where uh, I guess nobody does Halloween anymore. So, hi, Dave. How you doing? Uh, doing okay. Uh, you know, oh, there's some good Halloweeny stuff going on tonight. Uh, little, oh yeah, uh, Orpheum Theaters doing some late night movies, and uh, uh, there's a, a film festival on cable, and a lot of my friends of of our generations uh, are hunkered down with the bowls of popcorn, watching uh, uh, vintage horror movies circa 1930s 1940s good night for that yeah. oh and a classic that was on this morning i t-voted uh, uh an ed wood movie oh which one which one yeah. bride bride of the monster Ooh, oh yeah. i okay. know of it i've seen clips from it i've never seen it start to finish so right. we put it on the dvr this morning when it was running at you know like oh dark 30 and uh, gonna watch it after the podcast yeah yeah well, good for you also here in the hangar, of course, is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is an aviation journalist currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also is a contributing editor to Avweb Biz, and he's down in his new home in Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Hey, Jack. How are you this evening? I'm good. And, uh, good, good. Um, how about them socks? Yeah, huh? How about them socks, huh? I heard they won a couple of games. <laughs> won yeah. the world championship, huh? Yeah. You know, that oh. is kind of just so tied a knot in Fox Network short. So yeah, to have that? the socks close that puppy out in four games instead of taking it all the way to seven. Yeah, right. I, I, they, well, you know, we're not... Well, and- and the great thing, you know, here we are, you know, here we are in 2007, and um, more power to them. Absolutely. To Sox because, you know, it's it's really the only the second time in 89 years that they've won a World Series. Okay. All right. Well, they did it twice. <laughs> they've done it twice in four years and both times in four games. Jeb, That's right. is, Jeb is Jeb is echoing a, an email that he sent my way earlier this week, where he was trying to ding me on this. And my response at the time, as I recall, was uh, that you can spin it any way you want, Jeb. But the fact of the matter is that the Red Sox are the only winners of the World Series this year. So, That's correct. Yeah. I, I fully acknowledge that, and yeah. uh, uh, all I'm really doing here is just trying to yank Jack's chain one yeah. more time. That's right. I still, they, uh, they, they definitely played a hell of a series. Yeah. Thank you. We're very pre- pleased up yeah. here. I went to the parade the other day. They uh, did a little parade where they, all the team uh, uh, was uh, taken down through the middle of town, and there was lots and lots of uh, screaming, cheering fans. And uh, when, uh, when they have a parade after a big sports win in Boston like that, do they toss out little bags of baked beans or anything? No. Like New Orleans, where they'll you know send you know Mardi Gras beads. The guys will throw yeah. Mardi Gras beads. Nope, nope, nothing like that. But uh, in so Tokyo, the they throw out sushi. We had the parade, they, and that was a lot of they fun. They do like a, you know, hey, mister, show us your mitt. 
You guys are working hard at giving me a lot of crap tonight. I don't quite understand what that's all we're about. We're really, we're really tickled for you, man. We really we, are. We are. We are. We Thank are. you. We're real pleased with the whole deal. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer up here in Boston, Massachusetts, the home of the world champion Boston Red Sox. So let's see. Now we were talking about Halloween. Now the other thing that's happening, uh, if I've got my dates correctly, this weekend we change over from uh, daylight savings time back to standard time. And uh, that is sort of yet another uh, a factor in uh, the fact that it's getting dark earlier these days. And uh, we were sort of wondering in our notes, uh, brainstorming, how is it different flying in the season when, when there's more da- hours of darkness? Obviously, you're going to spend more time flying at night. Uh, what are the considerations? What are the concerns? Have you had any good adventures after dark in airplanes? Well, yeah, in airplanes? Yeah. In airplanes, yes, but I, I, I've forgotten her name, actually. What is the airline? This is completely not apropos of what we were just talking about. But there was a Did story, I say that out loud? There was I'm a sorry. story in the news just today, I think, about um, one of the airlines that's going to – it's not a U.S. airline, as I recall. Um, it's going to equip their Airbus A380s. Uh, in first class with, with beds, all right? It was, it was British Airways. I saw that. And uh, they suddenly got a little concerned that people would use the beds for more than just napping. All of a sudden, no. they're concerned that... Wow, know, that never happened before? Hard to believe. Imagine. I can't imagine. Um, I, okay, so which topic is it you want me to, to respond to? Here? <laughs> Safety considerations let's, for flying. Let's, let's Thank you. Okay. first. Let's get it get it back on track. Um, as it happens, I'm working on a um, a piece um, for uh, aviation safety's December issue uh, on uh, night landings uh, or nighttime flying generally, and um, it, it's interesting. You know. Uh, there's nothing really that much different from night, uh, from daytime flying, except you can't see. Well, it's okay. pretty and simple. You can't. I mean, it's it's not that simple, right? I mean, it's no, really it's not. It's not. It's not that simple. Because there are some things no, you can see better, also, and there are some things you can't see nearly as well. Right. It's it's also the punchline is it's really just different, uh, and it, it, there's some things that are, that are easier, some things that are more difficult. Uh, it is just basically a different environment. Um, and really, of course, the pilot is is the problem, not the airplane or or uh, anything else. The airports are still there, the the towers are still there, the taxiways are Air, still there. The airplane doesn't know whether it's day or night, whether that, it's over water or over land. Exactly, exactly right. So what we have to do is think about the pilot, and the the trick with the pilot is to understand some of the physical limitations, specifically of the eye, uh, and uh, the need for uh, uh, some compensation there. Um, Regardless of, of uh, uh, how the uh, the eye perceives colors or or light or or um, um, regardless of how well lit a landing area is, <clears throat> you still have the depth perception problem, and um, that's where you know you just kind of need to plan ahead. Um, I kind of like to to think of night landings as uh, the time when I really kind of get to practice my carrier landing approach uh, uh, capability, where I, I try to get the airplane in the correct landing attitude well before uh, I get to the runway. And in other words, um, the nose is, is higher. Uh, the nose is perhaps not in the flare attitude, <clears throat> but it's definitely a tricycle gear airplane, of course. 
the nose is definitely uh, high. The, the nose wheel um, is above the main wheels. Um, I'm in a steady state descent. Uh, whatever I have to do with power and pitch, depending on my altitude, um, to, to maintain that attitude of the airplane and control the descent uh, with power and uh, put it on the numbers, put it on the, you know, the first uh, few hundred feet of the runway. Threshold and, marks. And, and do it, well, hopefully, um, not aiming for the threshold because sometimes you come up short. Um, but um, uh, that's, you know, uh, we can talk some more about it, but, you know, that's kind of my entree, if you will, to the, to the topic of night landings. Well, um, there's some... There's some- extra regulatory requirements if you sure. haven't exercised night recently that you'll need to do before taking off into the uh, post-daylight savings time world when it's going to be dark more than it's light you know anywhere in the continental u.s uh if you're in alaska it's going to be way longer dark than it is light uh for the next few months uh and uh It'd be wise for a person that's planning on any kind of regular or extended night flying, any night flying, to go out and get a little time with an instructor. Make sure that you meet the uh, three takeoffs, three landings, and those are full stops at night. Uh, to now, uh, those do not have safe. to be those do not have to be with an instructor. Those do not uh, have to be to carry passengers, but it's always a pretty good idea to find a find an instructor, or at least, you know, perhaps even just a more senior or more experienced pilot than you are Absolutely. to ride along a with you. Pilot. Right, a safety pilot or, or just someone, um, uh, a mentor, or, or even just someone who's your same experience level, and the, the two of you can kind of learn from each other's mistakes. Well, and um, it's, not just a, <clears throat> it's not just the departure and arrival from the airport uh, that uh, are of a concern. En route, you're going to be closer to flying in instrument conditions, VFR though it may be, there's mm-hmm. a reason why an attitude indicator is required for night flight, and it's precisely because it can be clear as a bell and black as the most bottomless hole you can imagine. Back up a second. No horizon. Back up a second. Where does it say an attitude indicator is required for night flight? I thought it did. I'm we'll have. Well, I, we, I'm willing. I'm willing to be educated, but but I can. You know, I certainly in any airplane with an electrical system, you can fly at night, and with with the appropriate lights. Okay, I'm just saying. I thought an attitude indicator was required for night. I don't think so. I may have that wrong. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, let's let's we're gonna have to look that. that up. We're gonna have to look that up, and if we can't figure it out before the end of the podcast, I'm sure a listener is going to educate us. Um, there was a story in the news a couple weeks ago. We had it on the on the story list, and we never got to it um, about the guy who uh, the fatality uh, in out in the Los Angeles area who uh, had. See, I, I, the point I'm getting out of the story, and I'll complete it in a second, is yeah. that uh, once again, people in the eastern part of the United States don't always appreciate the different kind of circumstances flying up in among the mountains in the West Coast. And uh, this guy was taken off from some airport in the Los Angeles area and heading for Las Vegas, basically. And the oh, way you boy. do this, day or night, the way you typically do this is you fly through the passes. You, you don't try and climb over the highest peaks. And, and on one level, at night, it's easier because you just follow the headlights on the interstate, which goes through the pass. 
But right. this guy took off around two o'clock in the morning, and you can kind of and I, I don't I've never heard a follow up in this story, but you can kind of imagine that there weren't as many cars on the highway, or something happened, and this guy crashed down in the median strip, uh, trying hmm. to get through the pass. Um, but it's you know it's it's a it's a weird combination of incredibly what kind of airplane good. Was it? it was a PA twenty eight. Because I remember I was I was talking with a, a close friend of mine, uh, associate. Uh, last week or, or a week before, we were talking um, um, generally about Piper Saratogas and Cherokee Sixes and Lances and that kind of thing. And he said, oh, by the way, um, I, actually, I think he was talking about a, a, an older accident, but uh, um, the accident involved a, a Saratoga or a Lance, and, and the guy was um <laughs> basically shooting touch and goes on you know like i20 or something well, um okay. at, you know where, wherever it was some high altitude strip of of uh of uh interstate highway out in the in the in the rockies and the airplane just wasn't cutting it it was either overloaded or or or, or low on power or he was just too high or bad technique or something like that but he was trying to get through a pass and uh uh, bounced it a couple of times on a on a highway over you know a several mile stretch and ended up piling it up in a in a in a ball of uh, future beer cans. But yeah, uh, that doesn't sound like this one. This sounds doesn't sound like this. This no. sounds like simply a case where he got disoriented in the dark. Is what sound what sounds like yeah. to me is that he was planning on following the interstate because you can usually see the interstates really well. But if there weren't a lot of vehicles on the interstate, then suddenly you don't have this nice clear shining beacon of, of you know pearls on the ground, mm-hmm. and suddenly mm-hmm. he got disoriented or whatever and. Uh, and didn't make it, but it's it's very very different kind of atmosphere out there because, you know, the, there are areas where you've got great lights on the ground. I mean, all this, you know, oh sure, all these these you know uh, orange vapor lights that that make the ground very very visible. And then out there, they'll end. I mean, it'll end in like a two block space where it'll go from yeah. totally lit to totally black. And typically, totally black means that's where the mountains, that's where the hills begin, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. you can get disoriented and you kind of forget that, that you know, just because it's dark doesn't mean that's below you. I mean, it can be right next to you. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real consideration when you're flying out there after dark. You've got to be very, very careful because there can be a hill right in front of you and you just don't see it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not God's gift to any of this, but uh, I've certainly flown over my stretch of um, – desolate parts of this country at night and um you know it is one of the more desolate places i've encountered has been uh, um south central and southeast georgia uh at night where uh the route i used to take um from the dc area uh down to that vicinity um i'd fly I'd fly past Lynchburg and, and Greensboro and Charlotte and Raleigh and and uh, Fayetteville and Columbia and Augusta, and then whammo! It's like someone turned the lights out. There is nothing for like an hour between Augusta and in the southern part of the state. Uh, there's you know some settlements here and there, and there's a mercury vapor light out in the middle of a cornfield every now and then, but um, there's really nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, um, from 13,000 feet, you can see glows on the horizon. And every now and then you can see, uh, uh, I don't know what, you know, a campfire or something like that on the ground. Uh, but it gets, uh, uh, it gets pretty, uh, pretty dark out there also, which brings up a, a little rule of thumb for VFR pilots flying at night. 
uh, in cross country operations is get yourself a low altitude in route chart, commonly known as an IFR in route chart, and use it <clears throat> um, to uh, fly VOR to VOR if you need to, or or uh, uh, and you see the same basic information on a sectional chart, um, but you're looking for uh, the altitude information. On an IFR chart, you're looking for the uh, minimum in route altitude information on the various airways depicted on the uh, instrument chart. Uh, on a sectional chart, you're looking for that that altitude figure in each section. Of course, a section is 60 nautical miles. That's why they call them sectional charts, boys and girls. Uh, and in that section, there will be a large uh, blue number probably uh, with a smaller uh, number to its right, and that is the thousand and hundreds of feet um, that you need to be at to maintain safe altitude uh, uh, above terrain and obstacles in that section of the chart. That's why they're called sectionals again. Um, use those altitude numbers. Um, plan your flights around them, and you won't hit anything unless or until you're getting ready to descend or climbing out of your uh, your various airports. The uh, the man misspoke. It's not required for night. Okay. Where, no, where do you uh, find that? I Googled it, and I came up with the uh, FAA page. The FAA okay. has already closed it out. But, uh, Was it part, part 23 or 91? 91. Okay. Okay. I'm. I'm sorry. I don't know. Because I I looked at ninety one real quick while we were talking, and um, I didn't see anything, but I didn't really look all that hard. Hang on again. All right. Well, while we'll FAR Part ninety one section ninety one point two oh five effective as of o two o seven two thousand five two oh five instrument and equipment requirements. Okay, that makes sense. Well, there we go. Learn so something I'm new every day. Learn something new every day. Now, that's not to say that an attitude indicator isn't a very good idea. Well, flying. You at were night. talking about your night experience. Uh, there was a night flight for me from Coffeeville, Kansas, to Augusta, Kansas, several years ago in our little Cherokee 140. Moonless night, uh, about a 4,000 foot overcast layer, mm-hmm. and needed to be at 3,000 for terrain and cloud clearance and, well, terrain and tower clearance. And for most of that flight, which was just a little over 100 miles, for about the first 70 of it, it was over a section of Kansas called the Flint Hills. There's nothing there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it was, it's a black hole. Uh, there was no horizon. Uh, there are no roads. There's no uh, ranches. There's no uh, uh, farm lights for miles. And uh, every five minutes, I'd flip on the landing light to make sure that the cloud layer hadn't deviated. And I had all the airports that I could turn to if the clouds deviated uh, circled on the chart in a color that didn't disappear under the red light. Mm-hmm. Having learned my lesson on another flight, but the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 bottom line was that for all practical purposes it was an instrument flight mm-hmm. in terms of maintaining attitude and heading, 
because there was no reference point out there to visually key off of. Mm-hmm. Can, can you say JFK? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I wrote an op-ed for the Wichita Eagle after the JFK accident uh, referencing exactly this same experience. Uh, it was legal VFR. I was legal. I was qualified. I was night current. Um, but it was on the gauges. Right. Because mm-hmm. there was nothing out there to, to, to tell me whether I was up, down, left, or right, yeah. uh, except what was in a panel. And uh, I uh, had done a little night practice with uh, with a friend of mine about two weeks before this flight. And it was more for his benefit than for mine. I, I felt night current. After that flight over to Augusta from Coffeyville, um paid a little more attention to the night flying because altitude affects your color sensitivity and it shows up tremendously at night. Uh, One of the best things you can do for night cross country for night flight period, regardless of the altitude you're cruising, is to put on oxygen. Exactly. Breathing O2 will boost your color sensitivity and your visual acuity in general at night. Uh, visibly, you'll see it happen after you put the O2 on. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely one of the best hedges that you can give yourself. It's amazing flying at night. It's amazing how much the visibility picks up after you put on oxygen at night compared to the flight visibility before you put on oxygen. And it's it's that dramatic. Hmm. It is. It, it it's. There's no way. It, within my skill set to verbally describe this or to write it down and impart the, the 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 awe that I felt the first time that I used oxygen at night uh, oh was it 6,000 feet mm-hmm. uh, headed back to Wichita from uh, down in the Florida area uh, way way below any uh, required use by the FARs and had read an article not uh, too long before, written by our old buddy who was with us last week, James Winbrandt. Uh, he'd written about oxygen. Uh, my wife Annie saw the article, talked to him at Sun and Fun about that. And while I was working Sun and Fun that year, she went out and shopped all the oxygen system suppliers exhibiting at, at, at Sun and Fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We left Sun and Fun with a four-person system and a 22-cubic-foot bottle and used it before we got back to Kansas. Uh, and I was just – it just made my jaw drop. Uh, 6,000 feet, the sun goes down, and he says, you know, you think you ought to try this because James says it really is remarkable at night. And I'm going, yeah, okay, sure, what the heck. Jim's always been credible. But I'm having a hard time imagining it being that much of a big deal. And we plugged in two cannulas and dialed in the uh, flow meter for the altitude, turned the system on, got everything adjusted, and both of us breathing through our little oxygen-conserving cannulas were kind of like, holy crap, you can see it change. Really? Mm-hmm. That's very yeah, interesting because I don't, I don't fly on oxygen very so. much at all. I, I really wasn't aware of that. I mean, I sort of knew it intellectually, but I'm, to hear you say how much of a difference it makes. Well, that's just it. it. I knew it intellectually, too. Yeah. I never thought thought much about it uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, because I seldom flew at night at altitudes where it was required. 
uh, and until James turned me on to the, you know, the uh, night acuity changes, I hadn't really thought much beyond the need to stay within regs. Uh, I hadn't really considered it a safety of flight issue, particularly a night flight issue, until reading his article. Uh-huh. And uh, so we bought this little system from my old buddy Rick Lee at uh, Mountain High uh, out in Utah. Uh, great deal, padded case, bags for the mast and cannulas and uh, straps to tie it down on the airplane and a very reasonable price. And filled, already filled. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, flew off with it, and at fir- very first time we used it, it was like, oh my God, I had no idea. From yeah. that point on, it didn't matter what altitude we flew at night. At least I used the O2, if not both of us. Yeah. Now what's now one of the other things is what is it? You can't, you shouldn't try and look straight at something at night. Is that is that? Yeah, that's uh, um, that, that, that it has something to do with to, night dark vision. That yeah. that the center of your eye is not as sensitive as what, the. What, Exactly. Well, it's the other way around. Yeah, exactly. This is it's the uh, yeah, the center of your um, receptor, the center of your retina, um, is not as receptive to low light situations as receptors around the periphery of the center uh, of the retina. Um, Sounds like a design flaw. It's a, it's 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 a bug, not a feature. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the trick is, you look slightly off to the side. Uh huh the feature you're trying to identify and it will be sharper ever so slightly sharper uh than it would be if you were staring at it straight on although that's true in the daytime not not a light dark issue but a it's much easier to find something in the sky if you're not scanning for it you can't you gotta like stare at one spot and let your peripheral vision find the motion well that's true but but we're talking about you're staring you're i mean you're looking basically at the object but you're not, you know, directly focused on it. You're just looking slightly to one side, and and uh, you will be better able to identify it, identify its shape, and perhaps get a better feel uh, of of uh, its distance mm-hmm. um, than if you were staring at it straight on. This is again at night. Uh, you also have uh, uh, autokinesis, where something moving things with your mind. No, where the object appears to be moving on its own. Um, you I look, thought that was hilarious. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to come. <laughs> no, that's that's well, called that's science. one of us, Jack. I know. Uh, <laughs> All I really care about is amusing myself. You guys can you know have fun if you like, but I'm, I'm doing just fine. I'm sorry, Jack. You it's like autokinesis. We are trying to be serial. Uh, <laughs> autokinesis. Tell me what it really means. Autokinesis means that, uh, and this is mostly prevalent at night. Uh, an object you might be looking at appears to be moving. Actually, it's stationary. It could be on the ground. It could be a star in the sky. Uh, but because uh, there's so little depth perception, there's so little, uh, um, I don't know what the word would be, so, so little to compare it against or, or uh, uh, um, uh, to, to uh, uh, judge the, the relative motion of the object, the eye for, you know, really a marvelous little gadget, but uh, uh, it does have its flaws. The eye tends to think that that object is moving. You also have uh, color perception issues. Um, color acuity declines considerably yeah. at night, mm-hmm. es- especially if you're borderline hypoxic. Yep. Uh, 
another good uh, uh, recommendation for using oxygen at night. Um, there's all kinds of little uh, tweaks and, and uh, uh, concerns and considerations that uh, uh, you might have or, or you might need to review, if you will, uh, if you're going to be doing any extensive night flying or, even, or for that matter, if, if you haven't done any in recently. Um, well, a couple of other things that are helpful if you when we when we still owned an airplane, we averaged close to fifteen percent of our hours annually at night, uh-huh. and averaged at one hundred and seventy five or so a year there for a long time. Uh, that was, you know, twenty hours or so at night a year, a little over twenty. Uh, it, and it was really nice. Some of the summer months, it was so much cooler and smoother at night. It was nicer to go that way. Meant getting in really late because of the longer days and so forth. But if you're flying the same airplane regularly and you're using your landing lights on, on, on arrival, you probably don't notice as much where the landing light actually hits the pavement when you're on approach. Mm-hmm. But where the landing light or lights hit the pavement can be a great visual cue to use in your approach uh, to help compensate for the uh, reduced depth perception. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're flying an airplane with wing with wingtip mounted landing lights, usually they're aimed in a way that when they come together or close together, you're at the right attitude and right altitude to pull the power and finish your flare. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Comanche was that way. The the Cherokee with just one landing light out front, there was an attitude that I could set on the uh, attitude indicator. And when the landing light got down to where it was just about to drop below the cowling in my field of view, I knew I was there. Mm-hmm. Just pull the power and the airplane was on the ground. Wham, mm-hmm. bam, thank you, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as nice as those cues are, though, one of the th- one one of the Im- important aspects of going up with a safety pilot or an instructor is to do a little practice once a year or so on making those arrivals with no lights whatsoever, mm-hmm. nothing in the cockpit, <clears throat> no landing lights, no taxi lights on the outside, mm-hmm. because you never know when that moment might come and the uh, uh, the electrical system says break time. Well, yep. when you're on the ground. Yeah. That's right. We're going to take the afternoon off. Uh, and that's exactly right. Now, for years, you know, I thought, well, for years I was under the impression that, you know, you had to have a 2D cell flashlight with you at all times when you're flying at night. And while that's a hell of a good idea, it is not required unless you're flying for compensation or higher. Right. It's a, it's, um, it's a 135 rule. You're right. It's a 135 rule. Um you know, my airplane. I've probably got. Uh, I, I know. I can think of three flashlights in the cabin right now, <laughs> and and that doesn't count. What I probably got stuck in a glove box. It doesn't count. What I've got stuck in a in a gadget bag or or a flight bag or something like that elsewhere in the cabin. I've got, I've got one on the on the pedestal below the instrument panel. I've got, and that's just a two double A cell uh, uh, mini mag light behind. The uh, behind the pilot seat in the map pocket uh, on my seat, I've got a three D cell mag light sucker. You can go to war with. It's that big and heavy, and uh, that's my you know if I have to bust my way out of the airplane after a crash landing kind of thing, 
but I also use it at night um, to check the the wings. Sure. Uh, to sh- shine on the wings. Uh, my particular airplane has tip tanks, and it has sight gauges uh, built into the fiberglass of the tip tanks. They're basically it's a nice it's not, feature on those. It's not, it's it's not painted over, uh, and it's translucent enough that you can even at night see the 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 level of the fuel in those tanks, and that becomes important when I'm on a long cross country. And I need to transfer fuel from the tip tanks back to the mains. I look at the chips to verify that they are in, that the fuel level in those tips is indeed going down after I turn on the transfer pumps. Uh, it's also helpful to you know look at the wings every now and then when you're flying at night and in the wintertime to make sure you're not picking up any ice. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was, um, that was the next thing on my radar because yeah, we yeah. always carried two white light <laughs> flashlights. And two cockpit light flashlights. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me let me ask you this. First, let me, let me tell you my flashlight story. My flashlight story is uh, a good friend of mine uh, told a story one time that when he was taking his CFI check ride, he was sitting with the examiner, and the examiner said, "Okay, show me your flashlight." And he reaches into his bag and he pulls out the flashlight, and the examiner grabs the flashlight from him and says, "Okay, now what are you going to do?" And my friend reaches into his bag and pulls out a second flashlight, and the examiner <laughs> kind of looks at him and grabs the second flashlight away from him and says, "Okay, now what are you going to do?" And my friend reaches into the bag and pulls out a third flashlight. All right, and when they got to like the f- fifth, the fifth flashlight, all right, the examiner kind of said, "Okay, smart Alec, all right, just imagine what would, what would if you had no more flashlights, what would you do?" But uh, yeah, my buddy had lots of flashlights stashed. In his bag. So I'd that's, be out of gas. Sure. I'd have a whole other bunch of problems. Yeah, that's right. But but here's that's my right. so blue or red, <laughs> blue or red. Now you blue mentioned or, earlier red flashlight uh, uh, at night. Blue. Which do you prefer, blue or red? Actually, white. Yeah. Um, I've wh- come to believe that white I, I, is the way I, to go too. I have, you know, and I, I've, I, I'm, I'm of two, three minds on this topic. Um, one, <laughs> I, I, you know, don't start. Don't start. <laughs> <clears throat> the min, the mini mag light that I that it's attached to the base of my uh, center pedestal has a red lens on it, and um, yeah, I use that. Um, you know, scanning around the cockpit, I don't want to destroy anything. When I really want to see something, uh, I'll either take that red lens off of it. It's just on there with a rubber cap. Um, or I'll turn on the overhead light. Or I'll turn up the, uh, the courtesy lights and everything else in the, in the cockpit. Uh, or I'll get that, that big sucker out of the back of the, 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 out of the, the, the map pocket and uh, illuminate, you know, half the county. Um, it's your night vision for that's about right. 10 well, minutes. you know, if I if I'm looking for something and I need it yesterday, that's a different story. That's a whole Absolutely. different story. Right. If if I'm getting ready to shoot an approach uh, and I need my night vision, that you know, there's there's a balancing act here. But if I'm at thirteen thousand feet, uh, sucking O2, and I'm you know five hours out of my destination, I'll turn the light on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, I. I have a I've light. Got, I've, yeah, I've got red lights in the panel. Uh, I got post lights. Um, I've added some some uh, new lights, which are the uh, the high tech gadgets that uh, basically are these circular rings that you stick between the back of the panel and the instrument itself. All right, they kind uh, of bathe the face in right. a ring of light. Yeah, exactly. I've got floodlights, the whole thing. Um, I grew up in airplanes that had the red light. 
Uh, and if you research red light at night, you will you will find that uh, um, it is much less damaging to your night vision. And I don't mean you know uh, uh, physical damage to your eyes or anything like that, no, but no. I mean the brightness of the red light does not impact the, your night vision acuity. So you get your like, night vision back more quickly. After. Exactly right. If right. you lost it, it, the chances are you won't lose it as quickly either. Uh -huh. okay. Okay. Um, now, white light at low, um, um, I wasn't going to say low volume, but at a low, low, intensity. Inten low intensity, thank you, um, is just as good. The danger from white light is that you'll turn it up too bright and you will lose that, that acuity. You will lose the, uh, uh, the acuity that you would have retained by using red light alone. Now, there's also a kind of a whitish-blue light uh, that some, some people advocate, and that's built into some of these more modern panels. Um, I'm kind of ambivalent, undecided on that. I, I think it's, it's probably a compromise between the two extremes. It doesn't tank your night vision uh -huh, it, as much as white. It, it shows colors, uh -huh. renders colors a little more naturally right. than the red. Because, you know, under right. red light, there's some stuff that just almost all, it just yeah. about disappears. The, the magenta on a sectional chart, for example, uh -huh. uh, or, or the, uh, the red warnings on uh, placards. Or uh, you know, on checklists and things like that, could just kind of go, you know, MIA. I picked um, up a little, little, uh, little bitty job at uh, at NBAA. It was one of these giveaway trinkets. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. uh, if I remember right, it was uh, was it Cassandra? Oh, headset, party? headset company was giving uh -huh. them out. Uh -huh. You fly, you flown with their headsets. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. not the other guy, not Bose, but Lightspeed. Thank you. Plug in a nine volt battery into uh -huh. this little plastic housing. That's it. Then yeah. there's a little three way switch. Off, soft blue light, soft red light. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Two LEDs for each color. Yeah. It's perfect. Uh, you can clip it onto something and hold it in place. Uh, the bottom line is, though, you need to have enough light to to back yourself up. But it's also helpful to have the uh, have a little practice, just so you've got the confidence to know that your system fails. You're at a light. You get the flashlight out. The battery may go bad. You drop it, and it rolls out of reach. That you can still put the airplane down by sound, pitch, and feel. Because you got no lights in the cockpit. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's, right. That was the thing that my flight instructor droned in on me again and again and again. Is that, you know, time was when uh, guys flew cross country at night based on bonfires. Right. Minimal instrumentation and even less lighting in the cockpit. And uh, they were able to manage with no landing lights, no runway lights. Just some floodlights around the field, mm -hmm. and get it down. And if you can practice that just enough to know that you're capable, it can really help keep 
what could be a minor inconvenience from turning into a full-blown crisis. Right. It's a knowledge-based and a skills-based thing at the same time. Right. You practice the skill, you'll have the knowledge. Let me throw in, uh, if I could, let me, let's kind of... I, before we leave this topic... I'm not going to leave the topic, but I wanted to move on to a different area of the topic. Go ahead. What were you going to say, Jeb? Well, I was going to, I was going to uh, come up with or comment on something that I uh, discovered a couple of years ago, uh, working on an article on night flying with a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and he he kind of I don't know how he got into this, but he's an aviation safety counselor. He was he was actually named aviation safety counselor of the year a few a few years back, and uh, you know got his little plaque from uh, from Marion Blakey and that kind of thing. But um, he had he had spent some time and and. Uh, come up with a fairly lengthy and obviously very detailed presentation on night flying. And this is something I didn't even know and, and uh, uh, wanted to kind of reiterate here. Um, if you look at a sectional chart, and you can pull one out, you know, everybody listening at home, uh, pull one out and, and look around at some of the airports depicted on the sectional chart, whether they're towered or, uh, or non-towered. And you look at the, the magenta circle. Uh, that sign- that denotes where the airport is, and you'll see the the runway outline, and you'll see the general orientation of the runway, and you'll see the general per, uh, uh, length of that runway uh, on on the longer longer uh, runway airports um, presented within that magenta circle. Um, one of the things that he discovered in doing this in in I'm looking at a at a sectional right now when I talk about this. Um, the runway layout depicted within that magenta circle does not necessarily mean that all of those runways are open and usable. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the physical configuration of the airport as far as its pavement is concerned. Um, uh. But those air those runways, I, I I know one runway on one airport right now that has been closed for maybe ten years. Okay, you don't want to land on that runway, but by God, it's depicted as a runway on a current sectional chart. And if you're, you know, flying in that vicinity at night and you decide you wanted to divert to that airport and it's 10, 11 o'clock at night, there's nobody around. Um, maybe you can't get the instrument, you can't get the runway lights on because you're, uh, your radios are dead and you can't bring the, the uh, runway lights up with your push-to-talk switch. Um, you try to land on that runway, good luck. Um, what you really need for night flying, the punchline is, is you need to get your copy of the airport facility directory. Uh, the sectional chart is, is great. It gives, there's a lot of information there. But there's no information with respect to how to operate the pilot-controlled lighting at that airport. There's no information on whether... All of those runways depicted on that sectional chart are open. There's no information with respect to the lighting systems that you'll encounter when you try to land at that runway, yeah, land at that airport. one thing that you should be able to count on. Isn't there usually a, uh, a notation of the runway length, uh, the main, the longest runway? Well, the longest runway is denoted, okay? And if you look at... Uh, I'll look here at, uh, T- at Tiff County Airport in Tifton, Georgia. Uh, the sectional chart does, in fact, say uh, on it that the, it has pilot-controlled lighting, 
uh, and the, the longest runway is 5,500 feet, and that's that's accurate information. Gives the CTAF frequency, gives an AWOS frequency, gives the run, gives the identifier, and uh, you know obviously the altitude, the the, the ground elevation, I should say, of the, of the airport, etc. <clears throat> um, but it doesn't say uh, which of those runways is the long one. And it certainly doesn't say that of the three runways depicted, one of them is closed. Yeah. It can be even more subtle than that. This is actually one of the two points I wanted to bring up. Um, it's not even as dramatic as, you know, the information's out of date or the runway's closed or, or whatnot. Um, when I was uh, taking my primary training and we were going out to do perhaps my first night cross-country with my instructor, and uh, we we briefed for the airport we were flying to. We were sitting in the in the uh, pilot lounge, going through the airport facility directory. And one of the things he pointed out, uh, in, and it's a this is a really good case to you know example, is that this particular airport, and I'm pretty sure it was Stockton, California. Um, this particular airport has two parallel runways. One much shorter. It's sort of the GA runway uh, on the right, and then the left runway would be the longer, uh, you know, uh, uh, airline runway and so forth. But the GA runway didn't have lights. It wasn't lit at all. And so hmm. we were talking about during briefing, and my my instructor said, "Okay, you know, just kind of prepare yourself for the fact that you're not going to land on the right. You're going to land on the left." So, uh, so first of all, that's just so, sort of thing to keep in mind is that you want to make sure that you, you know, even if you're flying into a, an airport that you're familiar with, make sure you familiarize yourself with its strange night characteristics. We actually flew to this airport, and uh, and when we arrived in the area, the it was very quiet. There was almost no one around. Um, it is a tower airport, even at night, uh, and uh, we got clear. The controller cleared us onto the right runway, and I got brownie points from my instructor by not only remembering that the right runway was unavailable at night, but by tactfully pointing out to the controller that uh, he had assigned me to the wrong runway. And <laughs> controller came, you know, controller came back and said, you know, he said, oh yeah, right, the left, go to the left, and. Uh, but yeah, you're so left. You're left. Make sure you make sure you you've you've you know you've carefully briefed well, they, where you're headed for because there might not be lights at night. You know, um, they right. found out in uh, at Bluegrass Field, Lexington, <laughs> Kentucky, a, year, a little over a year ago, making a runway mistake can uh, yeah can mess ruin, up your whole day, ruin your day, and that was a night operation. Right. It was an yeah, early morning uh, before sunrise operation. Yeah. That's right. Before sunrise. The other, right. the other night factor that I wanted to throw into the mix is, is perhaps a little bit more – well, it's not exactly the same kind of ones we've been talking about, and that is fatigue. Um, mm. uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting that night makes you more tired, although it might. Uh, what I'm mainly suggesting is that if you're flying at night, it's probably because you've been up all day and, and you're more likely to be tired. And, that's, uh, that, that's another argument for oxygen. Yeah, a, a, a good one. Oxygen has you know? a revitalizing effect on your brain cells and your energy level. Uh, going on oxygen, uh, 15 minutes of oxygen, you feel like you woke up from a two-hour nap. Yeah, because we were talking last week about the things that have scared us most flying. Um, and on this Halloween night, maybe we should have held it for tonight. But uh, the the worst I ever scared myself in an airplane was uh, when we were flying a very, very long flight all almost all at night after a long day. And we just became so fatigued that we made some uh, just a horrific uh, plain arithmetic mistake in calculating fuel burn, and we almost ran out of gas. We 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 shocked the living daylights out of ourselves when we actually filled the tanks to realize how little gas was left. Um, you had one of those, huh? Yeah, 
and uh, and and looking back on it right away, you know, after we kind of woke up the next morning, we said we said it was we were just dead tired. And it's one of these you know one of these brain things where you literally lose the ability to do arithmetic. It's not even so much that you're you know it's not exactly sleepiness or grogginess. It's you literally lose the ability to do basic arithmetic um, when well, you get really fatigued. Exacerbates all of that. And it, that's right. exactly right. You know, so so fatigue I would suggest is another thing to watch out for when you're flying at night, um, if especially if you've been flying if it's been a long day. Yeah. The the um, another thing about um, <clears throat> going into airports that you don't aren't familiar with at night. Um, I found myself going into Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, one night. Long time ago, let's put it that way. The statute of limitations has probably expired twice. Um, uh, going in there, I went in there several times over over that period of time, but. Uh, uh, I, probably, I was either in a Tomahawk or a uh, Dakota, Piper Dakota. And um, going in there, and, and it's, it's dark, and, and uh, it's unfamiliar, and it's, it's uh, you know, I know there's this ridge over here, and I can see the lights on it and everything like that. And, you know, to, to stay, to get on the downwind uh, from this runway and to maintain clearance from this ridge, I've either got to be really close to the runway or I've got to have a lot of altitude. And I went around, I, I made an approach and I was way high and way hot and, and I went around and <clears throat> I made my, my traffic pattern one more time. And I said, all right, I'm going to nail it this time. And, and, um, Pulled off all the power way early and threw the doze down and and uh, made my turns and got the airplane on the runway. I used most of the runway to do it, but got the airplane on the runway. And I taxied in and, and uh, shut down. And um, I don't know how I figured it out. I don't know if someone based there told me later or told me then or I figured it out later. But the darn runway is I, I was flying opposite traffic. Hmm. Wow, to the to the runway. Yep, and um, that could have been I, bad news. It could have been really bad news, and uh, I, the same problem would have existed in the daytime. I'd have been able to see the ridge and what was on it a lot better. But the punchline is whether it's day or night, going into an unfamiliar airport, you need to do a little bit more research than I had done at that on that particular evening. Yeah, yeah, here, here. Lots of good night advice. It's pretty interesting. Of course, as always, we'd love to hear from our listeners about uh, their experiences and any other tips and corrections and some of the things we might have said here. Um, send your emails to uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Let's see. Why don't we move on here? A uh, couple of newsy th- Boy, Dave, one of these days we're going to get you to talk to us about safety stand down. We keep jumping over this here. Can you, can you give us a little flavor, a little taste of it here? We don't have, we don't have lots and lots of time, but uh, you just finished up last week with the Bombardier Safety Stand Down, right? Again this yeah, year. Yeah, the uh, evening we recorded episode fifty-two. I just finished four yeah. days of. You've given us a few little tidbits, but I mean, sort of, what was the big thing there this year? Was there anything that kind of stands out? I think the uh, some of the sessions on decision making uh-huh. and uh, looking at uh, uh, managing uh, and and being professional in your approach, uh-huh. whether you fly professionally or not. Uh, because they build stand-down as the knowledge-based complement to the skills-based training that's predominant in aviation today. You know, flying with instructors, flying in simulators, uh, learning, you know, 
what to do when, when this goes wrong, that goes wrong, how to handle these unusual situations. Uh, it takes up a lot of our training, and if you fly professionally or you fly regularly and get recurrent training, it takes up a lot of the recurrent. But the knowledge-based aspect of this is that they try to pass on the benefit of other people's experiences in terms of where the thought processes should have gone, where they went wrong, things why they went wrong, whether it was fatigue or a personality clash on the flight deck uh, or, you know, getting brain lock. You get focused on a problem and you stop noticing uh, alternatives to what you're doing. Uh, that's that was pretty much the, the 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 bulk of the three days of classroom sessions. Uh-huh. Uh, they also had one day of what they call hands-on workshops, where you get to practice water ditching, where you get to practice uh, uh, handling a life raft and getting in and out of the life raft, and learning how to put on a plastic baggie in the water to help uh, keep you from getting hypothermic. Uh, hands-on CPR and defibrillator training. Uh, workshops on international operations, workshops on uh, human factors and maintenance. Uh, it's 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 really quite a departure from what you usually encounter when you go to recurrent training. And uh, as I, I won't repeat the, the commendations I tossed their ways last week, but the uh, the bottom line, and we'll talk a little bit about some of these elements downstream from this week. Uh-huh. But things like the effect of fatigue, uh, subtle, insidious stuff that comes less from you being up for 20 hours straight, which certainly is a handicapping uh, situation, but the cumulative effect of you being on the road for a week and instead of sleeping eight hours, you're sleeping six. And instead of eating meals at bing, bing, bing these times, you're eating meals all out of whack. And how that rolls up on you over the course of several days and can come back to bite you uh, when you get in the cockpit to, to go home. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, I believe it. Some of it's more obvious, like 20-hour duty days. Yeah. Uh, sleeping for four hours, getting up and you know still being tired. And what that does to your, not only your mental skills, but your physical skills. Yeah. Uh, the most impressive thing I saw, though, and, and I commend this to anybody that has doubts about the effects of oxygen, uh, about the effects of hypoxia and oxygen deprivation. Anybody who ever encounters a workshop or an event where they're offering rides in something called, uh, oh, gee, it just went blank. Uh, the, the reduced reduced oxygen breathing uh, device. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a ROB. Yeah, uh, ROBD. You know, it's, it's it's interesting. Just a real quick commercial plug here. Um, in my December issue of Safety, I've got an article on night landings and night flying. I got an article on uh, hypoxia and uh, reduced oxygen breathing. Go ahead. Well, the bottom line is, it's a little machine with uh, valves and switches and electronics in it. Uh, it's got a pulse oximeter built in so it can read the victims or the, the subject's uh, blood oxygen level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you get a pressure mask, you suit up, they sit you in front of a, uh, a computer with a Microsoft Flight Sim and a real-looking panel with a yoke. Uh, 
And then the machine lets them control the mixture of nitrogen and oxygen in what you breathe. Now, in normal atmosphere, it's about 79% nitrogen, about 20% oxygen, and you know a little under 1% in trace elements in the normal atmosphere. Uh, they can dial down the oxygen content to reflect cabin altitudes of all the way up into the 30,000 foot level. And you get to see on the little meter the blood oxygen content of the uh, subject decline. And in the case of stand down, where they were projecting on three, three and or five by eight foot screens, what the subject was doing with the flight simulator, and you get to see real quickly how the uh, very subtle, insidious impact of, of uh, hypoxia started to affect. Uh, the uh, uh, subject's handling of simple things like airplane XYZ, you're at 12,000, okay? And they instruct you to climb to 23,000 and turn 150 degrees onto a new heading. So you're doing a climbing turn, and your oxygen level is going down proportionally at that. And along the way, they start to throw some changes into you, and the next thing you know, you're way behind the airplane. Way yeah. behind the airplane. Sounds like a great example. That, that's uh, it, it's yeah, right up there with that. To anybody that gets the opportunity to try it out. It's, it's right up there with that vertigo chair that you can ride to kind of sure right. get a real we, practical we, example of how these these perception things can screw you up. And, and the the thing about the reduced oxygen breathing um, technology or apparatus, whatever you want to call it, um, it's safer. Than doing a chamber ride, yeah, um, because you're you're at sea level or you're at you know your 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 normal altitude on the ground, uh, you're not in a in a pressurized steel box, or you know a depressurized, depressurized steel box. Yeah, um, and uh, all you have to do to to uh, to get back to uh, normal atmosphere is rip off the mask or have someone flick a switch. Um, in a chamber, in an altitude chamber, and, and I, I did a, I did the chamber ride a couple of years ago. Um, you know, you're with you know X number of other people. The um, uh, instructors may or may not have their eye on you at all times. Um, you're gonna you're literally at twenty five thousand feet. Um, you get uh, um, you pull your mask off and you get stupid very quickly, or at least I did. Uh, I, I kind of got religion on oxygen and, and altitude and, and things like that during that ride. But um, if you have a problem um, in the chamber, um, you've got a problem, and you're going to have that problem until they take the chamber back down to sea level. That, um, that, that cannot be and that, done. And it, it cannot quickly. be done immediately. Exactly right. Not and, if you value your eardrums. That's right. And, and, well, you have the other people in the chamber to think about also, and uh, they're not going to risk uh, – the, the people operating the chamber are not going to risk the other people just because you have a slight issue. Right. Um, but finally – could be more than a slight issue. Which could be more than a slight issue, but <clears throat> you're not able to communicate it for some reason, shall we say. Um, but the other thing to, to note here is that some of these instructors – who who give these who who do the training in the chambers for the Air Force and for other entities? Um, over time, they develop uh, some issues with their joints. And it's not the bends 
uh, exactly, but it's maybe borderline bends or, or the the uh, the the oxygen gets trapped, uh, not not oxygen, but nitrogen, nitrogen gets trapped. Yeah. yeah, gets trapped in their joints um, because it. Uh, um, and I forget the exact uh, physiology of all this, but it's it's the it's the reverse of what happens, of course, with scuba divers. Um, covering Bruce Bohannon's time to climb records right, a couple right. of times, he'd sit on the ramp in uh, the uh, Flying Tiger and in a pressure mask, which he was going to need at the top of that flight anyway, would sit in the cockpit of the airplane in sometimes sweltering heat, shielded by an umbrella, and for an hour breathe pure O2 to purge the nitrogen out of his system. Otherwise, he ran the risk of suffering the effects of the bends just out of how quickly he climbed up into the 40,000-foot range. Right, right. So the the punchline is, though, that this ROB, reduced oxygen breathing system, it does work. You will learn one whole heck of a lot about uh, borderline hypoxia, um, and it's a lot safer than taking a chamber ride. Yeah, absolutely, and a lot more convenient too. Yeah. It's a lot more convenient. <clears throat> Before we start to wrap this thing up, Dave, I so th- you've been going to the safety st- safety stand down for a while now, and and it is it is of course just work work work. You guys just just <laughs> well, there's uh, there's work and then there's work and then there's quitting time. Yeah, I know. So did you Spear third. did you did you uh, any of the visitors to Wichita? Did you take them up for some for some, uh, some of those Kansas? Didn't line? have to take them anywhere. They take a little lounge at the Wichita Hyatt Hotel. Basically, what I'm getting here is I'm trying to give you an opportunity to, na- to drop some names here. I'm, I'm I'm headed in that direction. Okay. They take this one room. It's a smoking lounge, cocktail lounge, but there's no bar here. It's like a, a, a big, uh, 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 oh, I don't know. Uh, you'd, you'd be headed off to the, to, the, to the library if you were the guest in a mansion. They take this one room. They declare it the captain's quarters, and that's where uh, many of the uh, presenters, participants, and, and other ne'er-do-wells show up after hours to swap lash, drink booze, smoke cigars, and bask in the presence of some names like Clay Lacey yeah. um, of Clay Lacey Aviation and uh, a phenomenal pilot, Bob Hoover, uh, who I, I imagine a few of you have heard, uh, probably the, uh, well, Billy Mitchell called him the best and rudder pilot he'd ever seen, uh, and uh, Gene Cernan, uh, the last man to walk on the moon, uh-huh. and that's who we got to hang out with a little bit last week and have drinks with after work. And you invited all these guys to be on uh, to come into the virtual hangar sometime, right? Uh, a couple of them actually, and we'll talk about that off. Offline. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, that's great. That's great. So how is Bob Hoover's health? Did he seem well? Uh, He's no longer not Bob, a spring Bob, chicken anymore. He uh, Bob, Bob seemed his age. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, he's uh, suffering a little more with the after effects of breaking his legs when he jumped out of an airplane during World War II. Uh. Uh, and uh, Bob's an amazing story. Uh, was oh, shot yeah. down over Europe, uh, imprisoned in the in the Germans Stalag One, and after a while escaped and stole a German fighter plane, which he'd never flown. Uh-huh. Checked the fuel, started it up, 
flew it back to England without getting shot down. Yeah, that that the, uh, That's returning the home trip. is the probably the even more interesting part of the story. Trying to yeah, but uh, Bob gave a nice little presentation on banquet night. Uh, he's moving a little stiff, going up and down stairs aren't real comfortable for him. Uh, but his brain's still sharp, and his humor is still just as good as ever it was. That's great. That's great. Well, as usual, we're running out of time here. Um, I, we've got a couple of shout-outs we're going to do, but are, you want any of these other main items you want to touch on before we, uh, before we finish this up? Anything that can't wait? Uh, no, nothing no, that can't nothing wait. That can't okay. Wait. Then, I think uh, we've belabored uh, Nightline to the point where people might take it seriously. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's beautiful to do. I mean, make no mistake. It's it's takes more preparation and more care, but uh, it can be spectacularly beautiful time to fly. Oh, absolutely. Shoutouts. Anything you want to cut, touch on before we uh, before we wrap this thing up? Well, I got two uh, that I posted. Uh, our good friends down in Independence, Kansas, where Cessna reestablished its piston production in '96 and now has piston production and Mustang jet production, uh, they're getting a uh, new control tower and a new class Delta airspace uh, starting this weekend. Uh, so if you happen to be flying through the neighborhood, uh, you want to make sure you're up to date on the information. Uh, we'll have a link on the website to the FAA's notice about the tower opening, which has all the new frequencies that you'll need. Uh, and congratulations to the folks in uh, Independence. Uh, That's great. It's been one busy airport since Cessna set up shop there. So they have a tower. They don't have any controllers, but they have a tower, right? They've got controllers 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., seven days a week. That was a controller shortage joke. Anyways, uh, <laughs> and well, I think one? actually they, they drafted a couple of guys from Oklahoma City. Uh-huh. And the other is uh, uh, kind of a uh, weird little anniversary. It's uh, maybe a little afield for GA, but it was an unscheduled flight. It was non-carriage, non-military. But uh, this coming weekend uh, will be the 60th anniversary of the first, last, and only flight of, uh, of Howard Hughes' Spruce Goose Yeah, out of uh, the harbor there in L.A., uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it's now up at the Evergreen Museum in, uh, in Oregon, and they're going to have a, a little doodah this weekend to celebrate it. If you happen to be in that neighborhood, uh, definitely be worth your time to drop in. If you've never seen the Spruce Goose up close and personal, there is not a photograph in history that actually captures the magnitude of this aircraft. Yeah, really. Uh, it just has to be seen in person to be put into any kind of perspective. I don't know how accurate it was, but one of my favorite scenes from the movie The Aviator of a couple of years ago uh-huh. uh, was that that sequence of that that quote unquote flight and uh, from inside the aircraft and it kind of, you know, claimed to portray, you know, what was going on in there and and what Hughes was doing at the time and uh, it was kind of fun, kind of exciting. And uh, and it did give a little bit of the sense of how big that airplane was, the 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 set that they built to to uh, represent the inside of that airplane was pretty That was one of the better scenes of that movie. And, and the excitement of it. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was just a really dramatic, exciting thing to try and, you know, make whether it was intentional or unintentional having this airplane fly like that. Well, let's put it this way. The A380 ain't got nothing on this bird. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, right. Big, big airplane. They've got walkways in the wings. Yeah. Right. Big enough for mechanics to go down and service the engines in flight. In flight. 
Exactly. Big, big airplane. Yeah. That's a big wing. That's right. <laughs> I have one shout-out. Or a little bitty mechanic. That's right. little bitty mechanic. No, that was the airplanes from uh, Casablanca. Another story altogether. Um, <laughs> I have a – you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, no. Yeah. The, uh, so the, there's the famous scene from Casablanca where Humphrey Bogart and what's-her-name were standing on the airport. You know, you know, you know, what's, uh, her, what's her name? Ingrid Bergman is what's-her-name? That's right. You can tell who I was really – Ingrid. Thinking. Ingrid. And, oh, the, and, the, uh, and the uh, – what was it? A DC-3 is in the back or the, that uh, – it it No, it's a Lockheed. It was the Lockheed, right. Excuse me, right. The, in, the, in the background, okay. But apparently it wasn't a real aircraft. Uh, it, it was a scale model of the aircraft, and, right. and the way they, but it had you could see the pilot in the cockpit, and the way they well, actually, scaled the pilot was it was a midget. All right, there was a, a little person. All right, <laughs> was was actually sitting in the cockpit, you know, kind of pretending to be the pilot. So they had because that's how they made the forced perspective of that shot. So uh, and they I didn't know that. some real shots of the airplane starting yeah. and warming up on the ramp. Those were done at Santa Monica. That's right. But but that, that movie also has one of the, as I recall, it has one of the worst simulated airplanes in flight. <laughs> it does. It does. It's, it's almost like uh, uh, the movie Airplane. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say the way that Saturday Night Live would have done it. But yeah, it would, you, you, can, you can almost see the wires. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Almost so. yeah, the way the prop spent. Well, but just right. remember one thing, guys. Yeah. At the this end of the 19- day, we'll always yeah. have Paris. That's right. We'll always have Oshkosh. Uh, I have a shout out here, and that is that uh, our friend Steve Tupper of the Airspeed podcast has for uh, a while now been telling on his podcast and on his website about his adventures in uh, in IFR training. And uh, last week, uh, just last, I believe it was Thursday, he completed the program, and Steve Tupper is now an instrument pilot. And wow. I want to send out big, our congratulations oh, to him. Congratulations, uh, Steve. Yeah. Yes, big so, time, Steve. Congratulations, and, and uh, good luck in, uh, in making all that work. It's like any other rating or certificate, it's a license to learn. And right. there uh, you go. I would look forward to, to hearing more about... Um, uh, what you learn next? Yeah, maybe yeah. we should get Steve on the podcast and get him into the virtual hangar here sometime. And, Love uh, to. So check out uh, Steve Tupper. Uh, he's been, like I said, he's been chronicling some of these adventures. I don't think he's written yet uh, about the actual ch- final part of the check ride because it was spread out over a couple of days for various reasons. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and in general, lots of good stuff on the uh, Airspeed podcast. I believe it's airspeedonline.com, but you can Google um, Airspeed podcast and you'll find it. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. Jeb, do you have any shout out before we finish up here? Nope, let's get the fork. Oh, okay. Yeah, you faked me out here. I wasn't quite ready here. Woo-hoo. So you can learn more about uh, Jeb and his work at uh, jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com. Dave Higdon, of course, learn more about his photography work and writing work at davehigdon.com. I'm Jack Hodgson at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. <laughs> and my, my, my name makes you laugh. No, no, it was the uh, litany of dot com dot com. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. And uh, and finally, uh, uh, join all of us uh, at the uh, uncontrolledairspace.com website. Where we've got the blog and the uh, the uh, fledgling uh, forum area and uh, other good stuff in the future. So, thank you everyone for joining us in the virtual hangar this week, and we'll talk to you all again next time. TTFN, shiny side up, folks. 